Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. From ChangeLog Media, this is Founders Talk. One-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stagoviak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of changelaw.com. For the final show of 2018, I'm talking with Travis Kimmel, the CEO of Git Prime. Travis has spent years as an engineering manager. And at Git Prime, Travis's mission is to bring crystal clear visibility into the software development process and bridge the communication gap between engineering and stakeholders. This communication gap is often an ongoing plague in the product development lifecycle. And to get to the heart of who Travis is, I wanted to make sure he was comfortable letting his guard down and being a little vulnerable. So I asked him, Travis, are you down with being vulnerable? Broadly or right now? Uh, Broadly, I guess. (laughs) Right now too, sure. Yeah, sure. Like you've been interviewed elsewhere. And I mean, I think your story is great. I want to hear things like, you know, deeper parts of your journey that you don't really share off. Almost therapy. You want to hear like the, the dirty back room stuff. Well, I mean, I want to I want to share whatever lifts you up. It doesn't yeah. doesn't shame you, but I want yeah. I want people to know that you're real. Good. You I know? mean, starting a business is tough. I'm happy to talk about it. Whatever's in your journey that you can bring out. In a lot of cases, it's a conversation. I don't know a ton about you. I know that you've built this company, been part of YC. I don't know a lot of the inner details around it. So a lot of this is me shooting in the dark. You know, I just don't know. Great. Let's get into it. All right. Give me a snapshot of your backstory that helps me have a frame of reference for this conversation. The whole impetus for starting this company was that I was an engineering manager. So, you know, running software teams. um, I'm I'm happy to talk a little bit about origin story stuff and and all that. Um, And got pretty frustrated by the fact that um, there are a couple of things. One, as as a manager of engineers, it can be really hard to figure out how to do your job well. Like, because there's not a data layer there, it's hard to figure out if your team is thriving or not, right? So in order to manage effectively, you actually have to consume the time of individual contributors. So every action that you do in that vein is sort of destructive to the goal of productivity. Um, so you live in this weird double bind, right? And, um, and that's tough. And my view was that if we had better data, we could solve that problem and, and people could be more effective and less destructive to um, how to the engineers. So that was sort of the initial. When you goal. say engineering manager, do you mean leading the engineers or in product management? Cause it seems like that could be an overlap, which layer, um, kind of all of it. So engineers get a fair amount of interruptive influence from all stakeholders Yeah, because one of the deliverables of management is uh, predictability. Like if you're a manager, you got to deliver predictability to the rest of the business whether you're a line manager or all the way up to the C-suite, it's part of the job. And so um, all of those people sort of walk into the engineering room fairly frequently and ask what's going on. And um, one of the things that's sort of unique to engineering, and I think other disciplines that handle a lot of complexity, is that interruptions are uniquely costly. Like you could burn a half a day if, by being interrupted because you're holding this big crystal palace in your brain of, you know, abstractions and then someone 
taps you on the shoulder to ask a question. And then you have to go sort of piece that large construct back together after that. And it's very, very difficult. Um, so it's product, it's, you know, it could be the CEO who just kind of needs an update on how things are going. It could be sales. It's everyone. Yeah. When the magic in quotes, magic makers, uh, cause in a lot of cases, software engineers to anyone who doesn't really know much about software and it's no knock against them. It's just like, we all have our areas of expertise. Like a CPA should not know about software. And if they do, then I'd consider a new CPA. They, they should just know yeah. enough that it's worth <laughs> investing into and agreeing with that it's a good thing to utilize. But not so much that they're like, I can go that up because if they, if they can't, it's just, it's just silly. But they kind of see that kind of role in a lot of cases like magic because they just like they create things from nothing. Teams create things from nothing, from ideas, from business problems. They're like, wow, we came from an age where there was never a solution for that. Now we have not only a software and interface related solution, and now we layer into like things like, you know, machine learning, neural networks, uh, you know, all this data related stuff, AI. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it. we've come to an era where, where we can wield software in such unique ways and things like the clouds there, things like, you know, the, the proper skill sets are there, the various languages and frameworks around languages and orchestrations right. around, you know, entire infrastructures are there to the point where we can pretty much dream and build it way faster than uh, Kevin Costner ever did. Yeah. And, you know, the entire industry is these sculptors of mercury that can sort of invent anything we want. And that it breeds its own class of problem. And it's sort of a new class of problem. Like when you can make anything, you have these problems around direction and focus. And it's just a very different class of, of problem than other industries face. It's not an efficiency problem. It's sort of, is all this work leading us in a direction that we as a business want to go? They're almost existential management problems. <laughs> you know, when we talk to people about technical debt, it's like, you know, it's sometimes hard to figure out if that's even a problem. All startups take on technical debt and we do it very intentionally. And, and if you think of it as a, a parallel to financial debt, that makes a lot of sense. You know, 90% of startups fail. So imagine someone could give you a loan that there's a 90% chance you would never have to pay back. That's good money, right? And technical debt is sort of a, a parallel to that. If you can move fast and increase your chances of success with a little debt, that's a good decision. Um, and so it's very, it's just very wild, very complex problems that, that engineers deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, a point or two you brought up that I really like a lot is, is, and I have personal history with being a product manager and a product manager over engineers. That's why I asked what level you play at, because I totally empathize with you. Something I've always found interesting is things like focus, tech debt, and I never really thought about tech debt being similar to how we treat financial debt, which is pretty interesting. And then the other thing was predictability, because like in the position of manager generally, over engineers or over product, and then therefore over engineers in some ways too, is being able to report back with confidence and trust from 
what we often call the other side, the business side, right? Like the people that are generally making decisions for us that we somehow have to make magic with and deliver and then also keep them on that side, not so much that there is technically a side so that they don't impact your ability to keep your team focused. Like That's just exactly because they're right. executives or C-suite or whatever term we want to apply to, in quotes, those people, um, we can't let them infiltrate our ability to lead product and engineers to the point where we where we fail them. They can't come in and say, squash this bugger, talk to them on the sidelines, but a feature. So we have to protect. And that means focus. Preach. Let's talk about focus. <laughs> Let's talk about focus for you. Let's talk about focus yeah. in, in your story. Let's go back into maybe a role or a scenario that you can talk about where, where you were losing focus or focus was paramount. How did you get it? And why was it important to you? Yeah. So I think a lot of the the conversation around focus, we have a couple sort of stories that we tell around here when we're thinking about doing product development. Um, and as a broad class, they're referred to as the button stories. So the first one is um, I was on a, I was on an engineering team where we got handed a, a requirement that said the app needs a mood button. That was the whole thing. And we're like, well, I don't really know what that means. So we, you know, go back trying to try and trying to track down requirements there. Um, and sort of got told, you know what, just build it. How about you just build it? So, so this guy on our team looks at the ticket. He's like, sure, I'll take a run at it. And he went and built, spent three weeks building whatever he thought that was. Um, we delivered it. And then the stakeholder comes back. It's like, oh, well, that's not really what I meant. And so then over the course of, you know, I'd say three or four iterations of this and four months of engineering time, we took a few successive runs at it. And um, then eventually the whole project was scuttled. So this to me is was one of these things where it's not necessarily a person losing focus, but the business is lacking in focus. It's just not, you know, an right. engineer can build anything. And because of that, um, requirements are super important. Because just get started, we'll figure it out along the way. It's not great when you're starting with a, a whiteboard and there's no real clear target. So I think a lot of times focus comes up as this thing that um, is sort of between people and is the mandate of good management. Um, make sure that the people who are building stuff understand what the final build should look like while giving them a lot of input along the way on structural soundness and all of the things that engineers do really well because they're engineers. Um, you know, one other example of this is um, the other button story that we talk about is the, the, the green button problem where someone will make a ticket that says, um, turn all the buttons green. And an engineer will see that, pick it up, and they'll be like, okay, great. I'm going to get in there and do that. And while I'm in there, I'm going to refactor the entire templating engine because I've been meaning to get around with it and it's a nightmare. And so, you know, the business sort of ordered, I don't know, half a day of turning the button screen. And then what they, um, what actually got delivered was three months of turning the button screen. And the engineer in this story did nothing wrong. Like they did all the things that we want from people. They, they showed initiative. When you see a problem, fix the problem. And really the deficit there is on the management side to see when that stuff starts to cascade into something that's not super in line with, uh, with what the business is looking for and then kind of get in there and help reorient that effort. And it's very, very difficult to do if you're, 
if you're relying on anecdotal storytelling instead of some form of data. Is it the job, though, of the person or persons that are leading the tickets, getting in the system for an engineer to see in the first place to make sure that ticket is or is not there? And if it is there, it has certain criteria that allows it to be there, which is a whole different problem. Right. Yeah. The fact that it's there and they're showing initiative is one thing, but the fact that it's there, period, is a whole nother. Yeah. I think this, from what we've seen, this varies a lot across organizations. And even if there's someone who does a really good job of, of grooming that stuff and, and acting as a, a layer between, you know, stakeholders and engineers, which is, which is awesome and every business needs, you still run into these things where um, because the rest of the business doesn't really understand engineering, they accidentally create damage. So people with disproportionate power in an organization, you know, C-suite type folks, can do this very easily without understanding what they're doing. Um, they can sort of walk into the engineering room and say, hey, you know, I, uh, I need to read on, on this thing that I wrote down in my dream journal last night from someone who's technical. I got to know if it's possible. And that, that type of interaction can just be very, very costly um, and nobody prices it in because nobody really understands the cost of an engineering interruption, right? So the business doesn't really price that in. And what ends up happening is that the engineers are expected to deliver things on schedule while soaking all that brain damage as well. And we think that that stuff is to just sort of stop. Um, and it's, it's a pretty challenging problem. It's a fun one to work on. <laughs> Let's talk about predictability when it comes to leading teams. I mean, it, it, I imagine without getting into the larger story of Git Prime that it really is about predictability because uh, I, I know that whenever I was in product management, we didn't have, I wish I had more data. I knew I felt reasons, either intuitions or I was in it well enough that I knew where we were trying to go, but I had nothing to back me up. Right. Like yeah. it, it, it was like my word, my bond, my trust was what was my data. Right. Yeah. And, and today I feel like, which is so funny. It's literally three years later when I say this, it's not like last decade I was leading product. It was right. like three years ago, <laughs> right. Four years ago, maybe. Right. I feel like in four years we've leapfrogged, you know, an entire what I feel like just is like a decade. It feels like a decade in, in the fact that we now have more ubiquitous access to data related things at this layer where they were sort of there before or getting there. And if you really wanted to run Gantt charts and burn down all these agile terminologies, you might get it, but man, it took a lot of work, right? right? You had to have like a dedicated team and a small team and a startup doesn't often have that, right? It right. takes, uh, as you mentioned before, a lot of understanding on the business side of this is what engineering is and does. And in a lot of cases, I feel like data can, can give them more of that knowledge with the right personnel in the management positions. Because if you can have your hypotheses about where products should go, how the team should be led, what they should be working on, and you have data. Wow. Let's talk about that. It's pretty awesome. So, you know, predictability is a really funny thing. It's definitely um, one of the deliverables that everyone expects management to deliver. And um, the less data you have, the harder that is. So um, 
if you if you as a manager have, let's say, you have a team of I don't know, you're running an engineering team of fifty people. In a dataless environment, you have to actually go interrupt those people and consume the time that they would use to do work in order to do your job, which is deliver predictability. So that, that's super tough. So managers oftentimes exist in this double bind where you know you don't really want to consume an, a, the time of an individual contributor, but you kind of have to, to to figure out if things are going well. Um, and data can be a really nice layer over the top of that so that you really don't need to interrupt people if you can verify that things are going well without doing that. So we love that idea. Um, you know, it's also, it also has this ability to depoliticize a lot of the weird interactions that people have. So if you're an engineer and you're down there in the data mines, right, and you're hammering away and then your hammer breaks and you're like, ah, dang, man, okay, I need a new hammer, right? Then someone from finance comes in and is like, yeah, well, this is a pretty expensive hammer. Can you, can you explain to me the ROI of this hammer? It's like, it's just very frustrating, right? As an engineer, you're like, I don't know. The ROI is that I can do my job, right? Like, right. But if you, can, if you have something to back that up, if you have something like, well, look at this. Here's a time series representation of when my hammer broke. And you can see here things were going slower. And then it got faster again when I got a new hammer. That's just powerful stuff. And it's stuff that other industries have. Like sales has that. Marketing has that. And it, it, it's very empowering to the people who, who run management in those industries. And it has the knock-on effect of the people who work in those industries have the tools they need. So this predictability and feedback loops, like all of that stuff is just, it's just a super powerful tool to be able to go advocate um, on behalf of your team. It's it's awesome. And, you know, mo a lot of us who have been in tech for a while have seen how sales sort of gets whatever they want, right? <laughs> I think they roll into the board meeting and they're like, yeah, I need another $5 million in budget next quarter. Someone asks why. And then they reply with something like, yeah, I'm going to compress the deal cycle time by 30%. Sweet. And we could do that. Like, no problem. Uh, you just imagine numbers. Yeah, exactly. Like they can make a promise, which can then be measured on the back end. Yeah. And that's awesome. Like, if you as an engineering lead can say, look, I need uh, a month to pay down a bunch of technical debt. You're going to see us paying down technical debt. We'll have a picture of that. Um, and then at the end of that, the team will be moving much faster. That is a powerful thing because you, you can make an agreement with the rest of the business that they can understand and then verify. And it's got to be, you know, our view. Here, I'm preaching the gospel a little bit. But our view is that also has to be visual. Because um, executives are super busy and they tend to learn with pictures. So first person to draw a picture wins. So in an ideal world, what you want is you don't just want data. You want to pre-consume that into a visual that can be digested in 10 seconds. And that's if you have that, it's awesome because you can take those visuals, drop them into a slide deck, hand them to somebody who has very little attention and is only going to spend three minutes glancing over whatever you give them and make a powerful case. So you listen to probably several of our podcasts. The changelog is our primary show. That's where things got kicked off. Then we began Go Time, JS Party, Founders Talk. This show has been around since 2010. 
and it's it's been a while. Like I had to pause the show for a little bit, but the point of this little segment here is to let you know that we have more than one show, and uh, more importantly, you can subscribe to them all in one single feed. We call that the Changelog Master Feed. If you're listening on a podcast client on your mobile device right now, you can go into your search parameters for finding a new podcast to listen to and search Changelog Master. You'll find it. You can subscribe to it. If you want to go on the web, you can go on the web at changelog.com master. And the cool thing is we release certain content only to the master feed. So some of our content hits all of our different shows, but some of our content only hits the master feed. So if you want exclusive content that isn't available anywhere else in any of the feed, changelog master is for you. Changelog.com slash master or search in your favorite podcast client for changelog master. Subscribe to it. Get all of our shows in one single feed plus extras you can't get anywhere else. You know, being able to communicate back to management with predictability is is the hardest thing to write. You know, you, you hear of other teams that can get more budget, get more time, get more anything, get more leeway by saying, well, you know, we can grow by this. And, and you know, as a manager in engineering, traditionally you haven't been able to, you know, or if you, if you did, you were able to, you had to do a lot of work. Let's talk about technical debt because you you mentioned um, before about this idea of technical debt being similar to say financial debt and using that wisely. Can you can you kind of dig into that a little further? Yeah, I I love that we've that we've called this technical debt. It's just such a great match. It's a perfect. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's a perfect match because if you you know if you've ever taken on debt personally as a business, it's it's awesome. It gives you some lift, and then the pay down it is a bummer. Um, and if you take too much, it kills you. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, a little bit, a little bit is medicine, a lot is poison. And if you think about, um, if you dig into that metaphor deeper than we, than we usually do when we talk about technical debt, and you think of it in the way you would think of financial debt, right? It's no wonder that all startups have technical debt. It's actually the smart move. Most startups fail. 90% of startups or whatever it is, fail. And so if you think of it as, hey, we're taking on a loan that there's a 90% chance we'll never have to pay back. And by taking on this loan, we will increase our likelihood of succeeding as a business. That's great money. And you got to be careful not to take on too much of that. <laughs> in, the, in the event that you succeed, you do have to service that debt. And just like you model out, you know, most businesses of any sufficient size run a business model so that they can think about debt in a very methodical way. Um, they talk, you know, model out how you're, when you're going to pay down interest, when you're going to start paying the principal. And I think if we start thinking about technical debt in a similar, very methodical, very disciplined way, we can start to think better about how much it actually costs us, right? Um, oh, it's going to cost 30% of our engineering capacity for the next year. That is a thing that, that people who are non-technical can understand. And if we have data to back that up, if we can look and say, oh, I can see the action here of paying down technical debt as distinct from all other work, and we can measure how much of our bandwidth is going to that, then technical debt stops being this 
specter that haunts the boardroom, right? The CTO comes in, like, talks about technical debt. Everyone rolls their eyes because they believe that it's just air cover for, I don't know, whatever. But there's really not a shared understanding there. If we develop a shared understanding and we do it in a way that, that is as disciplined as we think about financial debt, again, very, very empowering for engineering because now we're all having a shared conversation and we can have agreements around, well, yeah, this, this actually does look like a problem. We want to focus on paying down technical debt for a period of time. Um, and, and, and a CTO can then say, I need to pay down some technical debt in a way where the rest of the org doesn't hear engineering is taking time off. Because when engineering yeah. stops shipping new features, mm -hmm. that's what everyone thinks is happening. And it is super unfair. Um, and there's really no way to get around that. And it erodes the leader's political capital. And, um, and it's just a very, it's just difficult to, to speak to your peers when you're in engineering leadership, when you're relying completely on political capital and woo instead of data. What exactly is technical debt though? Like that's the, I, I feel like um, coming from a, a, an angle of having been in management before in a position of product manager, I felt like my core deliverable in lots of cases to get trust was setting expectations. So it's in, in a, a variance of predictability, right? Yeah. An expectation is just a variance of predictability. Like what I say is going to happen is going to happen. If I can set your expectation of this or that, then whatever, great. But when it comes to technical debt, what exactly is it? Set the expectation there. What, what do you define as technical debt? That's a great question. And Technical debt is something that is being inadvertently promoted by things like um, lean, the lean startup. So the lean startup says, get to market as quickly as you can and start getting feedback from your customers. And broadly, that's right. But when you say get to market as quickly as you can, I mean, you can get to market pretty fast. Yeah, people think very literally. Yeah. Like, let's say you, so you stand up a, a very simple application. Uh, you're probably using a framework. Rails, Django, one of the common ones, which is in itself a, a light form of technical debt. It allows you to stand up an application very quickly, but that application by its nature is generalist. It is not customized to the business case that you are, that, that you are building toward. Um, and that is a little bit of technical debt because if you were, took the time to build a very customized application from the get-go, it would take a lot longer, a lot longer, but it would be aimed exactly at um, the, the business case that you're building for. Now, what Lean says is until you get feedback from customers, you can't even be sure of the business case that you're building for. And it's right. That's, that's just right. But it definitely promotes us taking on technical debt. So the next step is you're like, oh, well, we need to build, you know, in our case, for our business, we have a parser that parses um, data out of Git. And so when we first stood that thing up, we were looking out there and like, oh, there's a library that does a fair amount of this work. Um, it gives us some nice abstractions and some other things. And so it wasn't quite what we wanted, but we dropped it in because it got us to market really quickly. Now, you know, you fast forward down the road and we're having conversations about uh, now we have a bunch of customers, we're in market, the ship is moving, right? And we're having conversations about rewriting our processor, which is like the core of our business logic. And we have to work around this module and sort of rebuild it and, and bring it in-house. And that is technical debt in motion. And it is completely unavoidable. It is, a, it is everyone will always do it because it's the smart play. 
And um, fortunately, around here, we have pretty candid and open conversations about that stuff. Like the, the engineering team can come to the table and say, look, we like we got to tackle this right now or we um, or it's going to be harder to tackle in the future if we defer the debt. Right. Like you take one credit card and you open up a new credit card and you pay it off with the other one. And really what you're doing is you're just increasing the total amount of debt. <laughs> and so when engineers come to the table to advocate for it, hey, we got to tackle this now. What they're saying is we can't just keep deferring this debt or the problem will snowball in the way that financial debt can snowball and bankrupt you. And um, and so, the, you know, again, all startups will always run into this forever because getting to market quickly is so valuable. But getting to market quickly is also the thing that causes you to incur debt. and our view is that management needs to start pricing that in as part of the cost of doing business. So I guess then the question is if all software teams are going to incur technical debt, how do you do it wisely? Right. So is, is the data what we're talking about, like things you, you and I haven't had traditionally. And now we tend to have obviously from Git prime and other tools out there that are similar to saying, Hey, here's surface level data of, of what you're doing in engineering. How do you, how do you take on technical debt in a wise manner? Because if it's got to be there, then you've got to make decisions around how it's going to be there and then deferred and or eventually maybe paid off. If you don't fail, how do you do that? How do you decide wisely what which technical debt to take on? Um, I think in the beginning you don't. So it's sort of how I think this mirrors um, other debt practices so or, or finance practices, I should say. So most startups in the beginning are fairly undisciplined. If we're being honest, right? There's a big bucket of money. You're looking at that waterline and you're like, that thing can't go to zero or dead. <laughs> That's like the level of sophistication that a lot of companies start with. You're assuming they're, um, they're VC backed though, or, or seed round even. What about the bootstrap? Sure. Um, I think the same logic applies. There's not, it, it doesn't make sense to have a lot of finance sophistication early on, unless you just sort of happen to have it from your career anyway. But even then you're probably not deploying that on the day to day, because getting to market is just, it's just a different motion. And then as the business progresses, you get incrementally more sophisticated about finance. At some point, you probably have reporting requirements outside. At some point, you're running a model um, to increase your predictability. Um, and I think if we, if we look to how technical debt should be approached, it's probably very similar, would be our view, right? In the beginning, just get that thing out there. Like lean is right. Get it out there. Don't worry about the technical debt. As soon as you start getting some traction, as soon as there's a, the, as soon as you realize you're one of the 10% that succeed, <laughs> that's when you need to start thinking about when you're going to pay down the debt. Right. And so um, what we see organizations doing when they've, when they have data around this stuff is thinking about it as a percentage of the engineering bandwidth. So They'll say, look, we're going we're gonna to carve off notionally 20% of the team, and they are just going to focus on um, servicing the technical debt and, and making sure and, and forward-thinking stuff and um, you know, pro making a roadmap of the technical debt that we will have to pay down and socializing that stuff with the rest of the org ahead of time. Because um, similar to finance stuff, if you walk into the boardroom and you're like, oh, yeah, uh, we didn't realize this, but uh, we're actually insolvent. Mm. That's terrible, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, we didn't realize and that. Often, yeah. And oftentimes, you know, and then there's this scramble to raise money or whatever. Um, and then oftentimes engineering teams will do the same thing. 
there's just this motion of deferring stuff and you roll into the boardroom and you're like, the entire thing is on fire. We need three months of, of not shipping any features to tackle this. And that is not good. Um, so if you can provide a roadmap of things that will need to be handled at some point, and then an understanding of the consequences of what will happen if they don't, that is the equivalent of a financial model, right? Like if you can look at the debt that you're carrying, you borrow a bunch of money and it's like, okay, we need to start paying this down here in the future. And let's say you borrow, I don't know, a million bucks. You can start to say things about that debt. Like a year, what that means is that a year out from now, we will be able to hire two less people because we will be servicing the interest and the principal. And that is about two FTEs. And if you can frame things like that on the technical side, where it's like, look, uh, yes, we can kick this feature out the door super fast, but what it will mean is that six months to a year from now, we will need to allocate two engineering headcount to fix this for a year. That is a decision that everyone can understand and participate in. The sales team can participate in that. The marketing team can participate in that. You don't have to be super technical because what you're talking about is these, these things that every industry faces. These sort of like, you're talking at the meta structural layer there. Um, around planning and business that everyone understands. And if you have enough data to, to bubble things up to that level, it's just very, very powerful. You just mentioned two other teams and getting them involved. And I think that's the magic of um, somebody in a product manager or engineering manager role where their job in a lot of cases is one, to be a futurist, right? Yeah. To have some self-assurance that they can get there. Not they, just them, but they as a team. But then also a, be able to speak a language and an invitational type person that says marketing's welcome to the table, sales is welcome to the table, and here's how I can get you involved. I think that, uh, which may or may not dovetail into some things we can talk about, but I just want to mention that a product manager's job or engineer manager's job is like an entrepreneur inside of a company. Yeah, an entrepreneur and also, I think a, a real, like, to me, the central thing about product is you have to be a force for synthesis, right? And you see occasionally when that goes wrong, um, any form of brinksmanship when you're running product management is, is usually bad. Um, you really don't want to be sort of creating uh, A or B style conflict too much because you'll miss out on good ideas. Like if somebody's talking to you, it's because they have something to contribute. Now, they may not be expressing it well because maybe that's not their job, but you got to figure out what that little nugget of goodness is and incorporate it into the idea. And to your point, that also, that'll, planning, you got to help the whole org sort of roll the, the goodness that they have in. And if, if a product manager can be, you know, a little less Klingon, a little more Borg, right? Mm. <laughs> You really want you really want to be this force for just incorporating all the good ideas, synthesizing that into a whole, whether that's on the product itself or helping everyone understand how the company is delivering stuff to customers. It's super important. Also, I mean, think about something else and tell me if you agree with this. I think uh, if a lot of people, especially in today's world, they see people who uh, seem to potentially come from nowhere and create something, and next thing you know, they are getting what they want. They, they succeeded, right? That's just a real quick version of maybe the the journey of an entrepreneur. And, and I say, or at least I thought in this last segment here was like, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, go lead product for a bit. 
<laughs> right? Or learn yeah. to leap right for a bit. And then that's going to be like your proving ground to say, you know what? I could probably do this pretty well. Let me step away and do my own thing. Or I like leading products so much. I have to stay in this role because I have the comfortability of, in quotes, a cushion job or a predictable job that I can do both and not take on the risk. So I just want to earmark that because that's what I think of when I see that kind of role, because it really does prove you whether you're right or wrong in that position to lead. You know, some of that I, I, I'm with you. I personally agree with you. I think there are there's so many ways to build a company. And the longer I, I'm in this game, the more respect I have for all of the little all of the functions in a business, you know, like sales is amazing. Marketing is amazing. Product is amazing. And and you um, if you're going to go be an entrepreneur and start something, you can start a company with a background in any of that. And it will um, the nature of that, the background you have will hugely impact the company's culture. So I'm a big believer in, in the product stuff. And I think what you get from having, doing a tour of duty running product is you, get, you actually just get a lot of compassion for, um, for a lot of different people because you have to interact with them a lot. And if you're going to be good at that role, you have to understand where they're coming from. That is a, a very powerful way to build a business. I also think a sales background is a very powerful way to build a business because there's nothing quite like a, a CEO with a sales background when it comes to raising money. You know, like they are really good at that. <laughs> and, and I think stylistically sales background CEOs create a, just a slightly different style of company, which is also a really fun kind of company. Um, but you know, for my money, I love having, I love having a product background. It's just awesome. You can really take the time to sit down with people, understand what they're trying to contribute to the conversation because it's been a career skill. If you run product, tell me what you mean by a sales background CEO and the magic there of like either fundraising. Why are they, why is that kind of person with that kind of background uh, more capable than someone without a sales background? Um, so, you know, I, I don't have a sales background. So some of this is, this is just me observing other CEOs who do um, and how, how they're kind of different from the way we run. And the power there is that, um, you know, Raising money is, it's a sales process. You're selling a piece of the company and there's a negotiation side to it. And, um, and oftentimes entrepreneurs will run that like a sales pipeline. So you'll, you'll run a process, you'll get a bunch of leads, you'll qualify them, you'll move them through a pipeline. And the end of that is a transaction. So the motion of raising money is very sales-like. So the advantage that a, a sales CEO has is that's all just very familiar. They're, um, they're very good at reading signals, right? Reading buying signals. You know, I'm, I'm constantly getting educated by our sales team on, on things that are not necessarily um, intuitive if you don't come from a sales background. So one of the things that I learned about that is if somebody, if you contact somebody and they, um, send you a long email reply about why, you know, why your product is all wrong or whatever. <laughs> That's actually a buying signal because they took time, which is very valuable, and wrote you an email. And, um, and so if you have a really intuitive understanding of that as you go into a fundraising process, that's very, very powerful. Um, you know, you also obviously you have to go out and sell and convince people and all that stuff. But it's also just that the motion of going out and raising money is 
it's a sales motion done right. Um, so I think there's a big leg up there. I also think that um, sales CEOs, from what I've seen, um, intuitively understand two other big things, which are culture and um, and process. Um, sales, a sales team of any size tends to be very process driven and, and that's awesome. And if you can bring that native understanding into building a company, that is a big advantage. Um, there's also culture, like since salespeople are pitching a lot, there's a, there's invariably this culture around how we pitch and who we are that is, is very, very important. And that's a lot of meaning to work um, when you're doing what can be kind of repetitive stuff, right? Like you're running a sales process over and over. And so the culture is super important. And, and sales CEOs that I've met really understand how important it is to make sure that, um, that everybody in the company gets the why. Like, why, why are we doing all this stuff, right? Not just what do we do, but, but why, are we, why are we bothering to build this company? <laughs> you know? So those are all big advantages of, of sort of the sales background CEO from what I've seen. And, and you think that product-driven CEOs like yourself don't bring that? Or they just bring less or a different angle of it? Cause you mentioned DNA too in there. And I'm just kind of curious how the DNA of like the leadership or the founding leadership trickles into the culture and company. You know, everybody starts with a skill set that they, that's like unconsciously competent for them. And I don't think that, um, that product background or, or frankly, or engineering background CEOs necessarily start with those other pieces that we just talked about. Like, there's not, I, speaking for myself, I certainly did not have um, a, a deep understanding of sales process prior to starting this company. And I'm learning more and more every day and certainly didn't bring that to our initial series C fundraise, right? Like I brought the, I brought the products, <laughs> the, the product naivete to that, right? It's like, I, we're like, obviously what we're building is amazing. People, we will tell them what we're building. They will immediately, the clouds will part, the heavens will be revealed, they will immediately see the value and it will rain money. And that turned out not to be true. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think if I had had a sales background, I would have known at the outset that that was just a little bit foolish. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, again, it's, it's just trade-offs. Um, I, I personally am enjoying having that with the product background because um, we also tend to approach a lot of um, we approach a lot of problems by making stuff right so when we're we were a young company and we were trying to figure out how to do marketing we were like i don't know let's make stuff and give it to people um, because we we make stuff that's what we do and so we started making content and, and we're like well what what are the things that we can make um that we do a good job at that we could hand people that they would appreciate and you know, we started like a weekly newsletter that was not, we weren't selling anything. We were just uh, finding good, valuable stuff that engineering managers would benefit from reading and then emailing it to them. And, and that kind of stuff is where the, where I think the, the founders really sculpt the DNA of the company. It's like, you run into a difficulty. How, how do we solve that here? And because the founders are the only ones in the early stages of the company, that stuff gets, you know, kind of like myelinated, <laughs> you know, there's these pathways that get run over and over and they become part of how that company approaches problems. I want to start transitioning some to, 
your background, not so much like the things you've talked through, but in particular, Git Prime, just to kind of give a frame of reference, obviously, of like, you know, maybe your journey. You mentioned seed round funding. You mentioned Series C, at least based on Crunchbase. I'm only seeing a C, only seeing a Series A. So maybe you're maybe you're thinking further into the future than is true, which is fine. But I want to track where you're at. So give me help me understand potentially where Git Prime is in terms of maybe not even funding, but just kind of like where you are as a company. Started in 2015. Uh, you you mentioned a background in management and engineering, so I'm assuming that the the company you founded is is in place because you were in the thick of it, right? You were you were in battle, you were in the trenches without the proper or necessary tools to give predictability to somebody. Is that true? That is quite true. Okay, um, so where does it go uh, from there? Well, let's cycle back one more step. Okay. So I started as a, I was a programmer for a while. Okay. And um, I, I got into managing the way that I think a, a lot of engineers do, which is, you know, someone walks into a room full of 10 engineers and they're like, uh-oh, that's too many engineers. And they, they wait for one of them to, to make eye contact, which is like the most extroverted one. And they're oh like, you, you're a manager now. <laughs> So do that's not sort make of eye contact. Yeah, exactly. Don't make eye contact. It's a mistake. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how I got, uh, you know, dubiously elevated into management and then discovered that uh, I actually kind of liked it. I didn't have any training there. And I, you know, I think a lot of engineering managers don't. And so I just sort of took this up. I read some books and whatever else. And then I took this approach that, well, you know, my goal is first do no harm, like try not to do any damage. And then, Second, see if you can be a force multiplier for the team. And that worked pretty well. And it, it pushed me rapidly into, um, into this need to have some actual data because the first do no harm thing is, is rough in engineering. Um, be, you know, we've chatted about this a little bit, but the unique cost of, of interrupting an engineer makes that a tough ask. And then um, act as a force multiplier for the team, which is similar, right? It's just, you got to figure out if you have... 50 engineers, what do I do today to make someone's life better? Um, and then and ideally without doing any damage. And so I started collating sort of data into spreadsheets and that kind of stuff. Um, and then acting as, um, as sort of this, you know, crap shield for the team, which I think is very common in engineering, um, where you sort of take all the hits so that you can protect the engineer's ability to work. And in all of those roles, I found that um, having meaningful data would have been awesome. Um, and, you know, the, the key there is meaningful data. Like you can bolt stuff onto GitHub or Bitbucket's API and, and extract a bunch of data, like lines of code written and all that, but there's not a lot of meaning in that. It's just not, there's not a lot of signal. It's a lot of noise. Yeah. Um, and so I really wanted to get something that, that get some data that was actually relevant to the work we were doing. Um, and so I just sort of seethed for a while about the fact that others just have that um, rolled off of that job, was sort of thinking about the next thing and, um, and messing around in uh, Adobe Illustrator or something. And this guy who I had known at the co-working space comes in. He's like, hey, what are you working on? And uh, I'm like, hey, I'm working on this. You know, I don't know. I have this idea. He's like, huh. That's a pretty interesting idea, but boy, you are really bad at that. Like no one's ever going to be able to use this because it's so hideous. I mean, I kind of see what you're going for, but it's ugly. 
And that was Ben, who became my co-founder. Who <laughs> was Yay. very good at that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Honesty. Like, That's a good yeah. place to start. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was like just through pure pity, you know? He came and he was like, why don't you let me show you a few things and kind of help you with this? So he starts getting there. I'm like, dang, that looks awesome. I would love to have that. So we played around with that a little bit. And um, over the course of a few months, stood up this super lightweight prototype, like proof of concept style. Um, got involved with this other guy, John, who became um, our, our first board member down the road. And he's like, you yeah, know, this is pretty interesting, but I actually think there's a company here. Um, so from that point, we raised a seed round, which was to operationalize the prototype, right? Like a, a prototype that you can drag stuff into on your desktop is really not that saleable. So um, we stood up, we spent about a year standing up something that people could connect to really easily and, you know, load their own data in there. And the first, uh, we kicked that thing out the door. <laughs> it was a, like a, the minimum viable product thing. I think initially we had a questionably viable product. <laughs> a year later or months later? Um, it was the very first build was probably six to eight months later. And it was terrible. It was, it was like I, I, the page took two minutes to load. Like it was just obnoxious. Um, and, and then to our surprise, someone paid for it. <laughs> We're like, what? This is crazy. Are they still a customer? Uh, uh, I, I, we, we stay in close touch. She is no longer in that, in the gig he was in. Um, but yeah, we stay in close. We flew out there and met him. We're like, what did you like about it? Why did you buy this thing? <laughs> and, and um, the read there was that the pain was just so extraordinary that people would wait two minutes to, for the page to load and pay for it. Um, so we sort of started, we had this kind of really lightweight launch, um, we didn't really do anything about it. We weren't really out there selling it. We were just sort of letting people in. Um, I think at the time we didn't even have a charge to, or a way to charge, um, or, or way to, was it, we had like a bunch of payment functions that we didn't have. Like we couldn't lock people out of the app. If they didn't pay because we hadn't built that feature yet. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, I mean, yeah. People often forget that even account deletions. Like simple customer service stuff that will like just plague you drags the team down because like common functionality like uh, paying for it or yeah you know you whatever is like well, we gotta build that then there's whole services around that industry now or that part of a product now but uh, you know so that's another form of technical debt and we can use a service and then eventually move that in house or not okay I won't derail your story but that's interesting just to that's think about that problem generally yep so incurred a bunch of technical debt along the way. Got into um, Y Combinator. We did that uh, winter of 16, which was awesome. I mean, cool thing about Y Combinator is that it's, um, they do a really good job of giving you a, a, a professional network out of nowhere, like a powerful one. So everybody has whatever professional network they have. But oftentimes entrepreneurs are, are so kind of heads down building stuff or, or whatever that you don't, you know, we're not necessarily out there doing career development because we're maniacally pursuing our ideas. And Y Combinator just drops in a, a beastly network and it is awesome. They're really, really good at it. Um, so we were very fortunate to get in there and um, did that for, uh, for three months. And, um, you know, at the end of that, we, we ran socially into this woman, Lee Hong, who, um, we was having dinner with her and she's like, yeah, I've looked you guys up. Um, 
at the time I was, I was pitching her husband who we, who's awesome. We know to invest. And he's like, you gotta meet my wife, Leon. So, um, so we go over, we're having dinner and, and, uh, She's like, I've looked into you guys and I really like what you're doing. Um, I really think this is awesome, but you are terrible at selling. Like you're the worst. Mm-mm. You're not even, you're Monster. not even trying to sell. You're not even order taking. <laughs> like, These people you're working whoa. with, uh, Travis, are really trying to be your friend. <laughs> oh my God. It was just this beat down, right? It's <laughs> like, like 20 minutes. It's like, oh, you're so bad. This is all this other stuff you're not doing. You're not even following up. You know, we, do, we did not know a whole lot about sales. So we would we would sort of um, like, we would email people be like, Hey, uh, do you want to buy this thing? And they wouldn't reply. And we'd be like, Oh, they hate us. <laughs> and so she we was talking to her, talking, telling me how terrible we are at it. And I'm like, well, geez, why don't you run it? And she's like, maybe I will. And then <laughs> that sort of snowballed into, into her joining the team as chief revenue officer when we were, you know, we're still very, very tiny at this point. She joins the team, drops in, legit sales process, all the stuff that, you know, great salespeople know. Lee Hong is also just very, very strong. Um, and then she started running sales and that was transformative. Um, you know, she was right. We hadn't really been selling. We were just sort of giving tours of our wares. And, and the challenge when, particularly when you have a, a product like ours that is, it's a little bit of a new category, you know? Um, I mean, there's, there's parallels out there and stuff, but the, um, you know, instrumenting the engineer, the people side of an engineering team is a sort of a new idea. And so there's a fair amount of work on the sales side to help people understand, okay, what is this thing? How do we use it? How are other people using it? And, and that requires a a strong sales motion. So, um, that was middle of 16. Um, there's like a lot of stuff in the middle there, which sort of boils down to like, we kept ramping (laughs) and, and then we raised a Series A earlier this year, um, and uh, you know, doubling down on on fleshing out the product and, and growth. So it's just a, it's a whole new phase of the company. You know, every every one of the curious things about being a founder is every few months you have a totally different job description. You got to keep adapting, and hopefully, you like learning because signed up for a lot of it. Yeah, it's uh, that's why I say it's kind of interesting. I feel like. A, a, a micro version of that happens in the product manager, engineering manager world enough to give you some thicker skin and or preparation for thicker skin. And then when you're actually in a role, if you ever step away and, and, you know, start your own thing or run your own thing, you get really adapt to it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm interested cause I do have a sales background. I have a marketing background as well and a design background. So I bring a lot of unique differences um, you know, in different disciplines where I feel like I have a level of expertise to our company. And I was really curious of your perspective on that because it, it, you know, you're kind of speaking my language to a lot of, in a lot of cases where I'm not a master salesperson by any means, but I'm a helper and, you know, it kind of depends on your angle. Um, I'm kind of curious what you mean when, is it Lee is the first name? Is that right? Her name is Lee Hong. Lee That's Hong. her first name. Okay. Yeah. What did she do to professionalize or upgrade your sales team? Like, what were the, the basic mechanics of if that's so important and you were doing it so wrong that she had to be so honest, what, what was not, not don't camp out on the wrong, 
Camp All Out and what, what she implemented and how long it took and the impact to your business? Yeah. So day day one was uh, we need a CRM. <laughs> so, you know, we were sort of, I think we were just, we had a bunch of emails and there was no organization going on around sales. Um, so step one was stand up all the tools. Um, you know, there were, then the, the second thing was uh, a sales team needs roles. Like there's not just, it's not just a one role that does all the stuff. Like there are people who are kind of the first contact, right? Um, SDRs, sales development representatives, is usually, usually what they're labeled or BDRs. And their job is to do everything from outreach and be ambassadors of the company and make sure that they, they sort of represent, it's kind of like first contact, right? Like you're meeting an alien species, send in someone who can communicate with them and right. those prime numbers. <laughs> and SDRs an serve that function. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're an ambassador. So SDRs um, serve that function. And, and it's a different function from sales, you know? And so mapping out these roles, like here's how we're going to grow the sales org. We're really leanly staffed right now. So we're just going to start with these roles. And then, you know, over time, building that out into, into you know, modern sales force that has all the right practices. I mean, you know, things like oftentimes if you're selling to somebody who is a, a manager in a corporation, you need to bear the entire load, the entire burden for all of the communications. Like you'll email them. They'll want to reply, won't have time. It drops below the fold in their in their Gmail inbox, and they never remember it again. And so, when you email them again, if oftentimes that's doing them a service, you're not bothering them; you're doing them a service. And and so, when someone who's good at sales comes to the table with a with an understanding of all this stuff, um, because they've been doing it for years, and so she just rolled out a lot of that, like uh, formalized how we sell, right? This is this is what people need to need to understand when we're talking with them. They need to understand um, why we built the product. They need to understand who it's for. And every single person needs to understand that. It can't be sometimes you get on the phone, you have a good day and you tell a great version of that, <laughs> which is sort of how how founders who are who are not salespeople tend to do that. It's like, oh, I was really on on that call. And a good sales force is on on every call because there's a format for it that works because all of your buyers need to understand some set of things about you. And a great sales lead can go out into the field, find out what those things are, come back, put that into a process. And now everybody's having a great day on every call all the time. And, you know, not having a sales background, it's and not having a lot of other marketing and all these other backgrounds. It's just, I've been humbled to watch how powerful it is when great people um, lead these teams. It's just, you know, I think if engineers, at least some of the engineering teams I was on previously, tend to sort of kind of poke fun at sales and sales pokes fun back. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, there's just so much impressive work that happens on the sales side, just like the engineering side and just like the marketing side that I, I think it's fascinating to learn about that stuff. And I, you know, I always encourage like, storytelling and, and inside our company on, on things like that. Whenever someone has like a big win, just kind of sharing that with the team. Cause it's, 
everybody's doing a lot of heavy lifting all across the company. Even if, even if we don't always understand the nature of that work, like it's all very complex and, and building a company out of that many moving parts is awesome. <laughs> well, there's two core things you have to do, right? The one is you got to build something and then you got to sell it. Right. And then there's obviously marketing in there and all sorts of sub roles. Those are like two core things you do as a business. You build something, you sell it. Right. It, and you can't break that down really any other way. So I feel like those two teams are, which is why in a lot of cases I can't buy in those areas on a show like this. Cause like all too often do we misunderstand or not understand well enough how important those two roles are. And then that's why I actually like, you know, what did you do to formalize? Establish a CRM, establish different roles in sales, formalize multiple contact points because yeah, you don't want to be that person who's emailing again, but if you do it the right way, you can get in and, and, you know, make a friend, the idea of ambassadors, we come in peace, you know, kind of yeah. things, you know, <laughs> and in a lot of cases, people email in cold calls, amazing. And you get through and other ones are just terrible. You know, and not all sales or ambassador related calls are cold, so to speak. In some cases, it's partnerships. In some cases, it's actual sales and you're selling something. But those those roles are so crucial to a startup that we tend to only pour into engineering or we tend to only pour into certain particular buckets that we're familiar with or comfortable with. And it sounds like your story revolves around being uncomfortable a lot and and being told that you're kind of sucking at some stuff which is kind of funny that you're still here i mean you just i think the important thing is to hear it when someone calls you down yeah you just gotta you gotta hear it and it's it sucks but but it's also good news right like if you if you've gotten as far as you have wherever you are maybe just starting out or whatever but you've gotten that far sucking which means that if you stop sucking, you will be more powerful. So when someone comes in and says, hey, you're terrible at this, that's actually the good news. There's something to fix. It means you're under-optimized. It means you capitalize on that and, and do more better. Huge thanks to Linode for being a sponsor of Founders Talk. As you may know, we host changelaw.com on Linode Cloud Servers. It's awesome. We get great 24-7 support. Zeus-like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network, and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Leno because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Travis, you've obviously had some struggles. You're building a company. You've been told that you're not doing it well in some cases, and some people have become your partners and coworkers and, you know, investors in your future. And I'm just kind of curious about your not uh, so much your role, but you personally, how you've personally taken these things, which often bring you or might bring you down. How have you been elevated? Uh, and maybe some of the personal struggles, whether it's depression, whether it's uh, isolation, whether it's imposter syndrome, or, you know, you take us wherever you want to help me figure out how you're personally impacted by building this business 
in positive or negative ways? Yeah. Well, I find, uh, you know, most people who come out of engineering really like being right. We're all, you know, we're, like, we're you know, we're that type of, that tribe, <laughs> the math tribe or, or whatever. It's the and, one or um, zero. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Come on. It's, and, it's simple. Uh, I found the funniest thing about um, growing a business is over being wrong over and over again. Like whatever belief, I, whatever beliefs I hold right now in this moment that I think are, are super right, I'll probably find out in the next year that I'm wrong about. Right. So like, you know, one of the things that I very early on that I'm um, was very convinced about was meetings suck. Meetings are like the death of productivity, <laughs> and I still sort of hold that view in a warm place in my heart. <laughs> but I, I've also learned that you can have too few meetings. And we did that for a while because I was being a fascist about not having meetings. And all of a sudden, everybody, like the organization is confused about itself because people aren't talking enough, right? Um, and so uh, I think we're still like in the middle of this particular transition right now, um, learning how to have just the right amount of meetings and elegant communication and that kind of stuff and not overemphasizing um, kind of heads down work because you can run headlong into a wall or somebody else as you get more and more people. Um, but the, the bigger, you know, the bigger thing there is that um, you grow, business grows so fast and it requires more of you than, than you can give. And if you are one of the ones that's going to succeed, you'll try to give it anyway. And that is a growth inducing stimulus. Like it's just a total beat down all the time um, in the same way that going and working out like every single day would be kind of a beat down, but you get stronger and um, you know, trying to, trying to give more than you have generally results in you realizing that you need to be better at stuff. You need to have more to give. That's been, in a nutshell, that's been my experience of building a business. It's constant. There's just a demand for personal growth at every level. Like, you need to be a better person. You need to be um, a better communicator. You need to do a better job at things that you probably don't like. Like, if you don't like public speaking, you'll, that's probably the next thing that you're going to have to push through. Or if, uh, you know, whatever it is that has been, um, like a part of your identity as a thing that you don't do is about to be destroyed. <laughs> I think a lot of people find that to be very demoralizing. I, I agree with that. It can be, but you kind of got to turn toward that and not overthink it and just focus on like the next thing that you can do to push yourself in that direction. And then when you look back, you've chained a bunch of that stuff together and you're a, a bigger, better person for having done so. I like that, that the, in one part, I'm scared as all heck of what you just said, because it's so true. <laughs> and I think, you know, there's portions of this show that's going to speak to people in your position or my position in roles of being a founder or a CEO or a leader. And then there's the future leaders of software and, and you know, in businesses that are like, what am I getting into? Oh my gosh, this is crazy. But we need to hear that because it's the expectation that, that I think is pretty important to understand because you can jump blindly into entrepreneurship, start building a company, 
potentially even think that the venture capital is the only way where there's other ways too. And you just start making choices based on what you think you should do because somebody else did it. And you don't really understand what the ramifications are of those choices and or what's going to be required of you personally. Something you said earlier that you said was that being told you suck is the good news. Break that down. I mean, you, you know, if someone comes in and they are passionately telling you that you're bad at something, um, you should always listen to that. And you, you've, well, you've got two choices. You can either be like, get out of my office <laughs> and they will, <laughs> or, or you can um, sort of take it to heart and take it to heart. doesn't, for me at least, doesn't mean acting on it immediately, probably to the chagrin of a lot of people that, uh, that I work with currently. Sometimes I want to hear like someone comes in like, gosh, we're really failing at this as a company. I'm like, okay, that's a data point. I'm going to look into it and I'll like do a little bit of work and be like, okay, I think I understand what's happening here. And then if you hear that a couple different times from a couple different sources, maybe a customer or uh, and it starts to bubble up, you realize that like, okay, I have, I verified we do suck at this and now we got to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that can be dangerous, particularly as a, um, particularly as a founder, is uh, believing too much of the story you are required to tell. So, um, people, you know, when you're when you're in a founding role, people kind of like startups are small. There, there's a lot of risk. People need to know what the path forward is, and you've got to paint that path forward. Um, and, and and make sure that everybody sort of understands that they're like what the next couple of years looks like. And so if you suddenly discover that something is, um, is wrong, something's broken and that thing affects that path forward in a meaningful way. Um, it's very tempting to just keep telling that same story about the same path forward, because in a way you've, you're out there talking about, it, you've committed to it, right? Like you, you told everyone this was the way forward and, and everyone's looking to you for that, you know, for, for specifically that for the path forward. Um, I think it's very seductive to just sort of keep telling that same story and not update it um, instead of turning toward the thing that's broken, analyzing it, dissecting it, incorporating that into a new version of how we go forward and then getting out there and telling that new story, taking it on the chin that you were wrong. They're like, nope, we got to adjust. Um, paying the cost of that, like, it, you know, you do too much of that and like people start to worry whether you know what the hell you're talking about. You do too little of that and people think you're full of it. <laughs> so like writing that little thin line in there is the thing that I, I think is definitely worth investing in. Um, it's definitely one of the main jobs of founders and CEOs and, and people who are leading teams. It's really one of the main jobs of leadership is mm -hmm. to just show people what's coming next. Um, so when you get this feedback about like you, you suck at something or the company sucks at something, um, navigating that in a way that is um, that's not so sudden that it creates continual brain damage for everyone, um, but also not head in the sand. It's just it's it's tricky and it's a skill worth developing. Zooming out a little further, given what we've talked about in this conversation, what do you feel like has been either, I'll give you a choice. You can take us in a fork, um, either a struggle or a lessons learned. And, you know, kind of zooming out a lot of what we talked about, 
Uh, I feel like there's lots of lessons learned that we've kind of already covered to some degree. Lots of struggles we've already, you know, kind of talked through as well. But, you know, you've evolved as a person, as a role. And I'm kind of curious, you know, maybe today, maybe let's talk, maybe even zoom in today. Or, you know, I gave you the choice, so I'll continue to give it to you. But I'll give you some direction at least. You know, what are some things that you're dealing with that you never thought you would that's either a struggle or a challenge or what's, you know, a gigantic lessons learned that you're like, you know, if you're listening to this and you walk away from this show, you've got to know this. This is what I learned. And if it's regurgitating some of the stuff, then obviously keep it brief and we can ebb and flow out of that. But let's go in a direction where we're sharing something like that. I'd say uh, be mindful of what you sacrifice. You know, a startup, again, a startup will ask more of you than you can give and you'll try to give it anyway. And that means that um, that has a blast radius. So be careful when you're sacrificing your health. Be careful when you're sacrificing um, family or you're asking family to sacrifice. Like that'll happen. And just be super mindful about it. And that I wouldn't say don't do it. It's just it's part of the gig. But be mindful about it. If other people are involved, talk to them about it. Like, hey, this is going to be a tough run here for a little while. I'm going to be on the road a lot or whatever it is. And, and just pay, like, pay a lot of attention to the sacrifices. <laughs> I personally, you know, I, I think when we were starting this company, I like, you know, I, I just stopped doing anything physical. I'm not talking about working out. I mean, even just like walking around. I was just sitting in a chair at a desk grinding. And that had a bunch of knock-on effects. I mean, I'm sort of, you know, like getting back into it now and all that, but it was just, I guess, very similar to the technical debt conversation. You got to watch, watch your personal debt. <laughs> watch your, wow, yeah. sometimes, sometimes that's financial. Sometimes it's health. Sometimes it's relationships. But just be very mindful of that stuff and, and measure the all-in cost of entrepreneurship as you continue down the road. Because it's just, it's a very costly thing. I... You know, it's not meant to discourage anyone. I love it, I, but no regrets at all. It's just, uh, it's part of the gig. And I think it's important to go into that eyes open. You know, it takes a while. Like building a company takes a while. So you got to settle in. And I think one of the things that I miscalibrated on was approaching it like a sprinter. Like we're going to get this thing out and then we're going to sprint to this revenue target. And then we're going to sprint to our to our um, series A and then, you know, just a series of sprints. Um, part of that is just m m the way that I approach life. But if that, if you double down on that and you go too hard at it, um, you do things that are, you make choices that are not sustainable. Like you got to settle in and think about how to build a company over a decade or more. Like, can you really just sit in chair that whole time and like ignore your health and eat crap? Probably not. Like, at the end of the day, when that bill comes due, it's actually going to be a problem for your business. <laughs> so things like that, I think, are, you know, be mindful of context, be mindful of the choices that you're making and the knock on effects of that stuff down the road. And and think long term, not just on behalf of your business, but on behalf of your personal business plan, like your, your life plan. And, you know, weave that stuff together in a way that's, you know, entrepreneurs will never have work-life balance. That's just a fantasy. And I think most of us probably don't even want it, but definitely think about work-life integration. Like how are you going to build those things together into a rope that you want to be swinging on for the rest of your life? 
I got to pause just because, wow, <laughs> uh, to take that in work life integration, swing on a rope. That's I mean, because if you think about a rope too, even to take that metaphor a little further, um, it's made up of tiny individual strands that make up a larger strand that could be a braided version of it. So you can go into the, you know, physical nature of many rope types and most ropes, um, at least the ones you climb in gym class are made up of three, right? So you yeah. might have, in this case, let's just say two because work and life. How you weave those together to swing on that rope for a long time is really interesting to think about because, you know, you, like you said earlier, technical debt, uh, actual financial debt, things like that. Wow, that's, that's so profound. Um, I'm just blown away by what you said. And it makes me think of wisdom. And somewhere along the line, you got wise. And I'm just kind of curious if it's been, you know, you got some, you know, show me your hands, how your knuckles look, are they bloody? Or, uh, or, or did you, you know, through Y Combinator or your, your partners in your business, you know, where are you, are you getting your counsel? Who's your counsel? And is that, is that there? And how important has it been to you? It's hugely important. Um, I, uh, you know, I actually, I was a self-taught programmer. I didn't have, I studied philosophy in college <laughs> and that was awesome. And um, I think it, this is pretty good headspace around there, like from philosophy. It's not the most practical thing, but it does give you this idea that you should respect wisdom. And I've always viewed wisdom as a thing to sort of be ingested to make you, like, it's like a food. You just eat it. It makes you powerful. It's awesome. It's like high protein. <laughs> and and um, I personally love seeking advice. I don't always take it. There's a lot of bad advice out there. You still have to have your own discernment about whatever advice you receive. But I seek counsel from anyone who I think has something good to say who or might have something good to say um, who will, who will uh, do me the service of offering me their counsel. Like we've gotten advice uh, or series C board rep uh, who I mentioned briefly, John has been a, he's been a great source of counsel. He's seen a lot. He's been in the startup scene for a long time. Great guy. He's been super valuable along the way. And I just really respect, um, you know, the time he's given both me and my co-founder, Ben. Um, I always talk to Ben about everything business related. <laughs> I think that's been really great for the founder dynamic. And then in general, um, I think going, if you're facing a tough decision, going out and getting a lot of opinions on it before you call the ball is really important. And then I think the other thing that's really important about taking counsel from anyone is making sure that you own the decision at the end of the day. Like, you can go get advice from a bunch of people, but never um, outsource the decision. That's super, super toxic. Like you never want to find yourself in a conversation in the future saying, I did it because person XYZ told me. Like that is not good. Seek a lot of counsel, bring it in, evaluate it. And then you, like you're the decider. It's <laughs> like one of my favorite quotes of all time. I'm the decider. <laughs> yeah. Just make sure that at the end of the day, that is your decision. You know, you got to kind of let all that wisdom mix in its own little pool and then take whatever distillate comes out of that and then own it. I am the decider. 
I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, Travis, I'm so glad to have had this time to talk to you because I feel like uh, you've taken me on a journey of learning and so much to share. And I, I truly, truly appreciate um, your story. I, there's lots of it I didn't expect. And, and I'm, I'm grateful and surprised in many good ways, particularly um, your willingness to be wrong and seek wisdom and counsel, which I believe is, is a true sign of wise leadership and to seek wisdom whenever, uh, in, in any way, really, you know, and to be better because of it and respect it. I think a lot of people don't hear that kind of advice, which is one of the biggest reasons I'm so passionate about producing this show because it's real, honest advice. Sure. Go read a blog post. You can get this round of funding and build this company. It's all going to be great, but you know what? Every day is not going to be great. Yeah. You know, like you said, building a company takes a long time, takes a lot of effort. It's a marathon. I love what you said when, when you said settle in. So it's like, it's like, uh, it's like a warning and preparatory at the same time. It's like, <laughs> Hey, it's coming up, settle in that kind of thing to close. Let's close on this. I, I, I didn't tell you this. I'm going to put you on the spot, but, uh, and you can share however you'd like. Sure. And, uh, and we'll close here, but what, what's over the horizon? What's coming up for you personally? What's coming up for get prime? What's coming up that, that not many or no one knows about that you can tee up tease or full on share here today. Well, the thing that I'm most the, the, the breed of futurism that I'm most passionate about these days is still on the product side. Um, you know, you always kind of maintain that deep down appreciation for wherever you came from. And so there's a bunch of cool stuff coming up. There's um, uh, one of the things that we think will be really powerful is if we can help the rest of the company understand um, how the organization as a whole um, impacts engineering. So, um, you know, there's this garbage in, garbage out thing. So what we spent a lot of time thinking about, like, what would that look like um, when we're thinking about the engineering team and the people side of it? Like, what does garbage in look like? And, and how does that affect the, the way that engineers work? So we've got some pretty exciting stuff that we'll be, that we'll be um, releasing kind of early next year that, that looks at that and says, how do we measure when someone when a stakeholder changes the goalposts mid-implementation what's the data around that how do we um how do we quantify scope creep how do we give engineering the ability to come to the table and say yes you're right we were late we were but there were a lot of factors that contributed to that lateness some of which was us but some of which was external to us and and um, we want to have a meaningful discussion about that so we can change the way we work and you know Maybe do a little bit of less of that next time, or at least just address it candidly and say, okay, we're fine with that. We're fine with a little bit of brain damage along the way, as long as it doesn't get extreme. Um, so we have a whole set of features around that that I'm very, very excited about. <laughs> and for us as a company, I mean, we're, you know, we're in a, we're in a pretty good spot right now. Um, I, my goal is to get on the road, talk with a bunch more um, customers as well as people who are not customers that we would like to be, um, get out there in the field, figure out what the right next step for, for, um, for us is to serve engineering and engineering leadership. And then, um, in particular, how we can continue to put a lot of emphasis on sculpting what we build to fit, um, 
the culture of engineering, which I think is very, very important. Like, you know, we, we do a lot of stuff to make sure that um, the data that we're socializing can be limited in a way that we're not creating more of this interruptive influence. Like we, we allow sort of seats in there that, um, that cannot see individual users' data and that sort of thing. And I think we, one of the things I'm super excited about is doubling down on that and, and yes, socializing this data, but also in a way that respects the way that engineers work, the needs of engineers as they're working one of the main ones being uninterrupted time. Like if we introduce a bunch of data and all of a sudden people are getting interrupted more, we've failed. That's where my uh, focus is. <laughs> it's just continuing to build a really awesome product. I think more importantly is, is, uh, is visibility where you hadn't had visibility before is, is a really interesting sol- problem to be solving. Very, very hard. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. So basically you're saying that the remainder of the year 2018 quarter four is heads down product. I'm sure you have a feedback loop in there and potentially early 2019. It's so crazy to think about 2019 being so, I know, so close. Right? Um, and I think you said that, or I said that in 2017, oh my gosh, 2018 is coming up. Boy, whatever. That's how life works, right? We just get over that. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that in early 2019 or somewhere uh, around there, you've got some launches happening. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. We'll have some more good stuff. And you have a newsletter. So I guess that the easiest way potentially to keep up might be to subscribe to that. I don't know if it's yes. product driven. It's definitely information driven. Uh, so if you subscribe to it, what you'll get is um, each week we send out, uh, we're, we're trying to fill in this gap, which is that a lot of engineering managers just get elevated without a lot of background in management. And so each week we we go out and we collate a bunch of information. It's not stuff that we that we write typically. Um, just things from other engineering leaders out there that we found super valuable. And then we uh, we give a little excerpt of that to help people understand whether it's worth their time to read. And then we fire it up, and it's it's awesome. It's definitely worth reading. I read it. I love it. <laughs> nice. It's always good when you can do that. It's actually something that serves you that doubles as serving others too. Because that's always nice whenever you can actually eat your own. Uh, we've learned to say drink your own wine versus eat your own dog food because, yeah. <laughs> or I think it might be champagne or, you know, drink of, of choice or whatever of choice, you know, in that, you know, drink your own, eat your own, whatever. Um, totally makes sense because you're serving you, which is great. But then at the same time, you're able to buy a product that and serve others in the process and, you know, potentially get some fans who yeah. may not be customers, but might be just people who, um, I think Seth Godin calls them sneezers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which when I say that, cause I'm not Seth Godin, he can get away with it. Anytime I've ever said it, it's like, what do you mean sneezers? That sounds weird. Yeah. Like virus. Like, well, it kind of is, you know, you get a cold, you give it to somebody sneeze. Yeah. It's a great yeah. metaphor, but terrible in its nature of delivery. But yeah. Well, Travis, thank you so much, man, for sharing your time your wisdom and your, your future of where you're taking get prime. You definitely seem to be a wise CEO and I appreciate you sharing that wisdom here today with me and the listeners of Founders Talk. I appreciate the invitation. All right. That's it for this year's season of Founders Talk. Thank you for tuning in. 
Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the show, if you can get value from the show, do me a favor. It helps out tremendously. Go into iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Either is appreciated. Go into Overcast and favorite it. Tweet a link to a friend. Share it. Whatever you could do. And of course, I want to thank our sponsors, Linode, Rollbar, Algolia. I also want to thank Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We're able to move fast and fix things around here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we are hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Check them out at Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode was edited by Tim Smith, mixed and mastered by me. The music is by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more shows like this, tune in next year, of course, but subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next year.